Open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter number 1. The past two weeks, we've been working through our Advent series, God of the Impossible. We've been studying a few men and women who found themselves in impossible situations. And if you remember from Luke chapter number 1, we started with Zechariah and him and his wife were... Elizabeth desired a child, but they found themselves in an impossible situation because she was too old to have children. We remember that Israel longed for a Messiah, but it seemed impossible that they were going to have their Messiah because they were under the thumb of Rome. We learned last week that from Daniel chapter number nine, that Daniel longed to see Israel return to Jerusalem, but that seemed impossible because the Persian Empire had just come to power. Israel were, they were captives in this land. They were actually becoming pretty comfortable with that and used to it. Jerusalem was a heap of rubble. The temple was a distant memory. It seemed like it would be impossible that they would ever go back there. And two weeks ago, we asked the question, how should you respond when you're faced with the impossible? And from the life of Zachariah, Zach, um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, We answered that question that we should walk with God. Remember that? Walk. What was the next one? Talk to God in humility. And then what? That's that's right. She remembered the rhyme. Lock on to God's truth by faith. And last week we asked the question, why should you trust God when faced with the impossible? And we learned that God fulfills impossible promises. Wasn't that amazing just to think through about how God brought his people back to the land of Israel and also Jerusalem. The temple was built. God declares impossible plans and then God offers impossible propitiation. This week, we're going to look at the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and look at her impossible situation. We're going to ask this question this week. What must you remember? What must you remember when faced with the impossible? What must you remember about the work of God when you're faced with the impossible? Over this past uh, month, I've heard from a number of people in the church who have either asked for prayer or just have been talking and hearing about some of the difficulties that are taking place in your life. And sometimes we find ourselves right in situations where we feel like it's impossible. You might even be thinking about 2019 and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this next year. I don't know what's going to happen this next year. Throughout life, we face the shocks of life that leave us numb. The doctor gives us the troubling diagnosis or we visit someone that's a loved one in the hospital or we feel beaten down by sin or, or maybe we just feel like life has, has gone the, a direction we didn't think it would go. We're going to find in our text today a young teenage girl who faces an impossible situation. So let's start in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We've read a lot of scripture this morning. We're going to read a little bit more here. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, just imagine that, an angel speaking to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying 
and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. If you remember from Isaiah, I just read about that. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am still a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, when we read your word like that, It's so overwhelming to think that that's real. That's true. And the fact that, God, you worked in a miraculous way like that in the life of Mary. And, God, you want to work in our hearts, too. So I pray this morning, God, will you do that work by your grace? God, show us the truth and then change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke chapter number One here, we meet Mary. I'm sure we're familiar with Mary, the mother of Jesus. She would have been a young girl at this time, probably between the ages of 12 and 14. At this time, these girls, when they were engaged, they would have got engaged early on. And so here you have a common girl from the hill country of Galilee. And she was about to be uh, married She was engaged, about to be married in a couple of months, and she was going to have the security that every girl at this time would have desired and frankly needed, right? You couldn't, as a single girl, live your life back at this time. And so you needed this. Engagement was a little different than we think of it today. Sometimes we call it betrothal to kind of give a distinction there. And it was set up by the families. The fathers would set up the marriage and they would be engaged, which basically was a legal contract that said that they were going to be married and they were married. They just weren't physically going to live together for a period of time. So Mary would have lived with her father as an engaged girl, waiting for the day that her husband would come back to her and would pick her up and take her back to her home, his home, and they would have the marriage ceremony there. So, so both the girl and the man, when they were engaged, would make a vow together of faithfulness and commitment. And basically, they would, if you want to say it this way, they would make a, a marriage vow together when they were engaged. And it would be a legal contract that couldn't be dissolved except by divorce. But they would live separate from each other. And the father, of course, would give a dowry. And the groom would go and build the house that needed to take place. He'd make sure the financial situation was in order. So when he brought back his wife and went and got her and brought her home, then they would have a house and they would have it all set up and they could start living their lives and they would have the marriage ceremony before they did all that. Kind of sounds familiar, right? I mean, that's what Jesus, we are the bride of Christ and he's the groom and we're waiting for him to come back, take us back to the home he has prepared for us. So you can kind of see that there. 
But imagine this girl, maybe 13 years of age, from a nobody town, right, in Nazareth. Nazareth at the time was probably about 400 people in the, in the town. So think about it. Everybody knew everybody and knew everything about everybody, right? So when Mary is told she's going to have a baby, and even as a virgin, then everybody is going to know this is happening, right? And of course, nobody's going to believe her. But the point is, is that it's not like she could be, you know, just in the background. Everyone would know what was happening. would know that she was pregnant and not yet consummated the marriage. And so here's a young girl awaiting her life. And think about it. Before this angel comes, her life's pretty much set up. Like she's engaged. She's going to get married. She's going to have the life of a traditional Jewish girl, common girl. And she's going to look forward to going with her husband in the home and having children, going visiting the grandparents, you know, having a, a wonderful life. But then suddenly life changes because an angel appears to her. We don't know where this happened. It could have been in her home by herself. She could have been on the countryside. She could have been at the well. We don't really know. But the angel Gabriel appears to her and tells her that, that though she's been faithful, though she's a virgin, she's going to have a baby. It's going to be a miracle by God. And actually, it's very important here. It's highlighted in the scriptures the importance that she's a virgin. If you look down at verse 27, it says the very beginning of verse 27 that she was a virgin betrothed. If you look at the end of verse 27, it says the virgin's name was Mary. So there you go. Virgin twice plus verse uh, 34. The angel asked Mary. Um, Mary I should say, ask the angel how she will conceive because she is a virgin. And so the, the, this concept that she's a virgin is, is so important for the story, right? Because God's going to do a miracle. And I'll just say this is that for probably the past couple, uh, maybe 100 years, has been a kind of debate. Was, was Mary truly a virgin or not? Does it, but actually is very important, right? We're going to find out the importance later on because, because she was a virgin. She could have the holy Jesus, like a sinless child. So it's very important. But think about this. Here's a, wor- a girl who saved herself. She's a chaste bride for her groom. She's a faithful bride until one day something, and, and everything's normal, until one day it changes and she finds out that her life is never going to be the same. Look down in verse number 28. It says, Gabriel, he came to her, right? He appears there, some kind of physical form. And he says to her, verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I love how simple that is, right? Like, greetings. Not, not, there's no, like, big bang, you know? There's no, like, bright lights or anything like that. Just simply Gabriel talking to her. The word greeting is actually the word sometimes translated hail or rejoice. Or we could say it like this. Hello, right? It's just a way to say hi back at that time. So he's saying, hello, Mary. Like, nothing spectacular. Here I am. Hi. God has favored you. He is with you. And notice what he says there. He says, you are what? You're a favored one. That word favor, the, the, the word behind that, the Greek word behind it, the root word is grace. You could actually say it like this. You can actually translate it like this. Hello, graced one, God is with you. And this, this word here, this verb, grace, is actually a passive verb, which means the action is taking place to Mary, right? God is giving Mary grace, right? That's a very important distinction. Mary is not giving grace. She's not a person who can give grace. God is the one who gives her grace. She's a receiver of God's grace. You say, well, why is this important? Well, 
There's a lot of teachings that take place out there, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church. It teaches that Mary is the mother of grace, that she can actually give you grace. In other words, you can pray to her and she can help you. But this teaching that I'm just explaining right here is not found in the scriptures anywhere. Like you can go through the scriptures, but a lot of times people go to this right here and they're like, oh, she's the one that dispenses grace. It's interesting, actually, because God's the one giving her grace, not the other way around. There's no place where we find in the scriptures where this idea that you can pray to Mary and she'll help you is found. In fact, this idea came, much of it from the 15th century. In 1495, an Italian Dominican friar added this to a prayer they had in the, in the church there. This was the prayer. You've probably heard it before. Hail Mary. You've heard that, right? Full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. And so this was added at this time, back in the 15th century, the 1400s. Then going into the 15th century, there was a council called the Council of Trent. A little history lesson here. You know what the Council of Trent was about? It was a response from the Catholic Church to the Reformation. The Reformation, what was it about? It was about people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And they were saying, listen, we can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, right? It's only through the scriptures, uh, the five solas, solas, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So these men taught that you can only be forgiven and found righteous through Jesus Christ, right? By faith. But the Catholic church was teaching a works-based salvation to kind of cement their, their, their approach to God. They had this council of Trent, And 40 Catholic bishops gathered over 25 times over 18 years. And and they put things like this in here, the idea that you can pray to Mary. But here is one of the catechisms that was added in 1566, said this, God has bestowed all of his gifts on the most holy virgin. The church of God has wisely added prayers um, addressed to the most holy mother of God. We should earnestly implore her in her, her assistance for that. She possesses exalted merits with God, and she is most desirous to assist us by her prayers. So that the idea is that you're saying that you should pray to Mary, is what they're saying there. And now 450 years later, we have people who pray to Mary, right? They have little statues, and they make prayers to her. So there's a couple huge problems here. One is only God can hear prayers, right? Mary was just a human. She cannot hear prayers. The other problem is Mary was a sinner, just like you and I, right? Mary had the same need for God's grace that you and I, both, all of us have. In fact, it's interesting if you look in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus goes to heaven, the disciples gather in Jerusalem in the upper room, and there's 120 disciples along with Mary and the other disciples and also uh, Jesus' brothers. The Bible says that they were up there and they gathered together. And what were they doing? They were praying to God. It's interesting. Why didn't they just pray to Mary? She's right there, right? For to pray to Mary. Like Mary could give grace at that time up in the upper room. Why didn't you say, Mary, help us out like here, you know? Because they realized that she couldn't do anything for them. Like she was just a human, just like they were. In fact, Mary was in need of a savior. Look down in verse number 29, Luke 1, 29. Uh, nope, not, not 29. Look down in uh, 47, sorry. Mary says in her song, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. 
So Mary realized that she needed a savior herself. Look down in verse 29 as well. And it says that she was greatly troubled at the saying of the angel. Isn't it interesting? It doesn't say she was greatly troubled at seeing an angel. I mean, if you saw an angel, wouldn't that be what troubles you? In fact, most of the times in the scriptures, that's what it says. Like they saw an angel, they were greatly afraid. But she's actually troubled by what he said, which I think demonstrates for us that Mary did not expect to hear this kind of greeting. And Mary did not think she deserved this, right? I mean, she was like, why in the world would an angel appear to a girl in the town of Nazareth? But she rejoiced that God was her savior. And she realized that there's only one mediator, right? And eventually she trusted Christ as the mediator between God and man, the Christ, man Christ Jesus. And there's no saint, there's no Mary, there's no one that can go between you and God. Only Jesus Christ is our savior. So look down at verse 30. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor. You found grace, same words, favor, grace with God. Now think about this. Mary was about to hear the most shocking news of her life. Mary was about to hear the most unbelievable words probably anyone had ever heard, right? She was about to be told the impossible. You as a virgin will have a baby. So God prepared Mary by having an angel say, God gives you grace, Mary. You are graced by God. So what must you remember when faced with the impossible? Remember God's work in you. Remember God's work in you. It's a work of grace. That's what God was offering to Mary and telling Mary, Mary, I give you grace. You're graced by God. What is grace? Well, there's a lot of definitions. I looked up some people's definitions, and there's a lot out there. You've heard this one, probably the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's kind of a cute one, right? Maybe memorable. God's unmerited favor. I read that uh, B.B. Warfields says grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserved. John Stott says grace is love that carries and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges says grace is God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against him. So all kind of carry the same idea. A, a definition I've used for a while, and I actually put in our, our little children's books for scripture memory and our tiny trackers books, is that grace is God's free work of love. I like it because it's easy for me to remember. I figure it's simple enough for kids, simple enough for me. So God's free work of love. And the idea is this, is that first of all, it's free. Like grace is Free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. In fact, it's interesting. Look through the book of Luke here. Look through the scriptures. See if you can find a place where it says Mary was a righteous person. Isn't it interesting that Zechariah and Elizabeth, who didn't believe God, or at least he didn't believe God, it says that they were righteous people, like they walked in righteousness, but it doesn't say that about Mary. Have you ever wondered why that is? Like, why would it say that about Mary? I think probably God wanted to make sure we didn't worship Mary. Right? He wanted us to recognize that she didn't deserve this at all. She didn't do anything in her life to earn this grace from God. God gave it freely to her, and that's how God's grace works. You can't earn God's favor. You can't earn God's grace. It's free. And also, I think it's, the idea is that it's God's free work of love. It's God's choice to say, Man, I'm going to work in your life. I love you. When God works in our life, it's his way to say, I love you. And then third, it's God's work in your life. 
That's just simply what it is. It's God choosing to reach down by sovereign choice and change you by his spirit and his power and work in your life. One of the key passages I love, and I'm sure you love as well, if you're a believer, is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's a key passage about grace. For by God's grace, right? Which is God's free work of love in your life, you have been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And when I gave out those gifts to those kids this morning, here, that was kind of fun, right? And you saw the kids' reactions when I said, how about you clean the church this next year if I give you this gift, right? No. In fact, who was it? The Sherrick girl that said, I'll give my gift back? (laughs) Yeah, there we go. So... Sorry to call out the shared, but you know, the point is, is this, is nobody thinks that way for a gift, right? But we take God's gift and we think we have to earn it. We think we must do something for it, but that's kind of goes against the idea of a gift. And God's great grace is his work in our life. It's freely given to us that we receive by faith. And as a Christian, his grace is available to us every day, right? It's a resource that we can go to God and ask, go before the throne of grace so we can find help in time of need. In fact, one of my favorite passages as well, just when I think about the difficulties of life, is this one on grace, 2 Corinthians 12, 8. The Lord tells Paul, my grace, my kind, free work in your life, it's sufficient for you. Paul asked three times, Lord, please take this away from me. Whatever problem it was in his life. And I'm sure Paul prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, take it away. But the Lord responds back. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. The answer Christ gave Paul was, I have grace for you. I know you want this removed. I have grace for you. I'm, I'm doing a work of love in you, Paul. Your weakness actually magnifies my grace. Your weakness allows you to lean upon me more and trust me more. So Mary needed grace, right? I can imagine as she goes through her difficulties over the next couple months and years that she came back to this, these, these truths that God is with her and God offers her grace. I mean, can you imagine after this encounter, that she has to go back to her parents and explain to them that she's going to get pregnant or she is pregnant and she had no relations with Joseph. Can you just please believe me? Right? How unbelievable is that? And even going to Joseph and saying, I, I've been faithful to you, Joseph. This is from the Holy Spirit. Right? In fact, we even know from Matthew chapter one that he didn't believe her. Right? He was thinking through like, how am I going to deal with this? I got to divorce her now. I want to do this in a kind way, but this is the right thing to do. I mean, you can imagine Mary sitting in her home. Do you imagine there's probably times where she cried and thought, Lord, what's going on? Like, I need your help. God, please give me what? Well, you promised. And that is, God, I am graced by you. Give me your grace. Help me, Lord. Give me strength to follow you. I mean, think about the first few years of her marriage, right? Before they came together and... Uh, Joseph obeyed the Lord and took Mary to be his wife, but they didn't have consummate the marriage until after the birth of the baby. But they went, had to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, a five to seven day journey, about 90 miles. And we all picture her on a donkey. She could have been on a donkey. They were poor. 
I doubt she was on a donkey, but maybe she was. Either, either way, she had to walk or ride 90 miles down, right? Nine months, eight months, nine months, whatever it is, pregnant. Think about she's down in Egypt there or down in uh, Bethlehem there. And she has a one-year-old child. And because they're in danger, the king wants to kill their baby and they're in danger. So they must escape then to Egypt. So she, then she has to travel two to 300 miles down to Egypt. Then she has to come back. I mean, at this time, a girl like this would grow up, you know, live and then die in the same place, right? You didn't just travel around the world. Like we live in a transient society. So we're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, she went here and there. That didn't happen here. That's not what their lives were like. I mean, think about, she had to have a lot of grace just to live outside of her comfort zone. Think of the, the fear and the, the weariness and the gossip and the scorn and the rumors, right? Mary needed the grace of God. And so I can imagine verse 30, those words from the angel, do not fear Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God. Can you imagine throughout her life that she held on to those words? God, give me the grace that you've promised. Help me. So what must you do when you're faced with the impossible? Remember, God's work in you, it's a work of grace. But also remember, God's work above you, it's a work of governing. God is governing the affairs of men. The angel told Mary in verse 30, look down in verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor, grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now for us, we're like, woohoo, like good news, right? And for her, it would kind of been a little bit of a mixed feeling. Like every girl at this time would have prayed for and hoped that they could be the mother, the Messiah, but not like this, right? This is not what she was thinking it would look like. I mean, how exciting, but how terrifying. But notice the emphasis on Gabriel's announcement. He says, you'll conceive and bear a son, but most of the announcement is about what? About what will happen, about what the son will be like. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. So there you go. That's that part right there, the the miracle within her. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest, most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What what the angel wanted Mary to know and remember was the work that God was doing above her. And that is the work of governing the affairs of this life. I mean, think about it. This was a very important thing that was going to happen within her. She was going to conceive as a virgin of the Holy Spirit. She's going to conceive a baby. But God wanted her to remember something even more important, and that was the grander plan that he had, right? A couple of weeks ago, we went to uh, um, a Christmas parade. So I think it started about 10 o'clock. Is that right? 10 o'clock. And so I thought, you know, get there at 10 o'clock, put your chairs down, sit there and wait for the parade. Well, we were at the very end of the parade, which didn't dawn on me that that would be a problem. So when we got there, we sat there and realized, oh, they're not going to be coming for a while because the parade is just beginning two miles away. So we went out and played in the field. And eventually we saw like a band coming down. So, oh, so we all go sit down. There's the band. They pass us by. That was great. And there's nobody else. So we're like, okay. So we start playing some more and kids are going to get bored. And then you have a couple cars that pass and it was taking forever. I mean, you'd have, you'd have a couple of cars and floats that go by and there's nothing. And, and I'm thinking, and you know, Santa's at the end of this, right? I mean, he always ends all these, you know, parades. And so 
when Santa comes, you know it's the end, but Santa has not come yet. So there were times we were going, is it done? I mean, maybe Santa's the only thing back there. There was a guy in a building opposite of us. And I remember thinking, if I was just him, I could maybe see down the road there. There were some planes that were flying over. I don't know if they were doing tricks or whatever they were doing up there, but there were some planes. But, you know, think about it. I'm in a position right now where all I can see is what's in front of me. And there's times where I'm thinking, I am ready to go home. And I will confess, we actually did. (laughs) Because it was like, Santa's taking forever to get here, and I really don't care to see him anyway. So let's go ahead and go. It was such a long pause. But, you know, think about it. If I were to call that guy on the plane or maybe even text the guy that was in the building up there, if I were to talk to them, they could give me a better perspective. They could say, oh, Santa's only a couple, you know, blocks down the road, or there's only a couple of floats, or wait, there's a really good one coming up, right? Instead of all these politicians in the back of their car waving at you, you know, like, what's the really interesting ones, okay? But this is kind of like what life is like, right? I mean, all we can see is what's right in front of us, but God has the whole parade mapped out. He has the whole perspective, right? And it's important for us, yes, to see what's in front of us, but also remember that God knows what's to come. And, and for Mary, the same thing is, is, is true. God knows the future. God has a larger plan that he is fulfilling. And he wants her to remember his work above her. And that is a work of governing over the, the affairs of men. And, and sometimes we can just see this small part in our life. And we get consumed with that and overwhelmed with that. And forget that God has something grander that he's doing in this world. It's a work of redemption. And God wanted Mary to remember that. The virgin conception and pregnancy was going to be so difficult. In fact, her life was going to be difficult, right? I mean, eight days after Jesus is born, they go to the temple and Simeon's there. And Simeon says, well, a sword's going to pierce your heart because of this baby. Like, you're going to have a difficult life, Mary, right? I mean, then it was even more important for Mary to remember there's something bigger than me that God is doing in this world. So think about the description the angel gives of Jesus and how important it was for Mary to, to grasp onto these truths. First of all, the ma- baby's name would be called Jesus. We know in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said the same thing. They call this baby Jesus. She shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sins. The word Jesus actually means Yahweh saves, right? The Lord is salvation. So the idea of Jesus' name helps us remember that Jesus is the one who saves. And also, secondly, verse 32, the scripture says that he will be great. This is the idea that he will be, have the greatness of God because he is God. If you look over in verse 15, the angel told, uh, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that John would be great in the eyes of the Lord But notice the difference in verse 32 of how he describes Jesus. Jesus will have greatness in his nature. Like in and of himself, he will be great. In the verse 32, also it says that he will be called the son of the most high. Most high, nothing gets higher than God, right? He is God, so uh, God is the most high. So it's son of God, son of the most high. We studied this a few weeks ago and learned that this idea, son of the most high, son of God, is the idea that, that Jesus is equal in essence to God the Father. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, but they're equal persons. And so when the, when the Jewish people heard God the Son, they recognized that this was an identification that he was claiming to be God. They saw this as heresy and blasphemy that Jesus was doing this, right? But that's the idea there is that Jesus is God. And fourth, the Lord, if you look down in verse 32, 
the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And I won't go through all this, but if you remember from Isaiah that we just read uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says there the promise that he will have the throne of his father, David, the Messiah here. So David was promised there would be a king that was going to come and rule forever. In fact, that's the fifth thing. Look at verse 33. He will be an eternal king. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and the kingdom. His kingdom will have no end. So there will be an eternal king who will live forever and rule forever. So how much did Mary know of this? You know, Mary, did you know that's your baby boy? Like, how much did she know? Well, we don't really know how much she really understood about all that. I think she definitely knew this, right? Because who was it that reported this to these men to write it down in the scriptures here? Well, Mary, right? So she remembered this. How much did she, how much did she understand? Well, we're not really certain. I think through time, things became clearer to her though, right? As, as the life of Jesus went on, especially after Jesus died and then rose again, obviously became very clear to her what all these things meant. But think about even this. Jesus is born. They live, Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem. In fact, get a house there. He's, Joseph is working. They're establishing their life. Jesus is over probably a year old, maybe a year and a half. And into town rides Persian magicians and they come and knock on her door right and open up the door and what do they say they're doing well they of course they told herod they were looking for a king so they could worship him and then verse 11 of matthew chapter 2 they go into the house so picture mary and joseph and this little one and a half year old there they saw a child with mary's mother they fell down and they worshiped him and they opened up their treasures offered gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So these men are honoring Jesus, this little baby, as a king. And even more than that, they're worshiping him, right? And the Jewish people understood there's only one person you're to worship. That's God, right? So when they worship Jesus, it looks like in this, that passage there that they're allowing this to happen. So you got to think what's going through her mind and Joseph's mind at that, that time as they think about the promises that God had for this little one. So we must remember when faced with the impossible, God's work above you, he's governing all things. And Mary faced really an impossible situation, but God had something bigger that he was doing. So the angel says, you're going to conceive a baby. And it's interesting. Look over in Luke 1.18 that the question that Zechariah asks when he's told his wife is going to have a baby and he says, how is this going to be? Like he basically is saying, give me a sign. Show me the proof that this is actually going to happen. But look over in verse 34 of chapter 1 of Luke. And she asks, how can this be? Like she's saying, she's saying, I believe it's going to happen. But please explain to me how this could happen. And the difference there is that Zechariah didn't believe God. She believed God. She was actually interested in how God was going to have this come to pass. So he asks for a sign. She doesn't ask for a sign. She just asks God to explain to her, the angel explained to her how it's going to take place. And so look at verse 35. The angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And let me be clear about something. This does not mean the Holy Spirit had any kind of relations with her. But that's, some people have falsely postulated that. But if you look at the words in verse 35, come upon and overshadow, they're synonyms speaking of God's presence with Mary. 
So the idea here is the Holy Spirit will be present with you, Mary, and will create within you a unique child. Kind of harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, where the, the God, the Son, Jesus, spoke the world into existence, and the Spirit of God was present, hovering over the earth, right? He was present there, making all that was spoken come into be. And so... The Holy Spirit will create, will create a unique child within Mary. In verse 35, it says, therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, the son of God. This is a description of the child's nature, right? When we, when we have children, we look at the babies and we're like, oh, they're so cute, right? And if they're a little fussy, the nurse says what? Oh, that's going to be a problem child right there, right? And if they're really quiet, they're going, oh, that's going to be, but we all know they're going to grow up to be sinners, right? Like they might be really cute. We have some babies in here today, right? They might be really cute, but we all know they're going to grow up to be two and three-year-olds, right? But the promise to her was her baby would be holy. He would have the nature of one that would be sinless. So how do you process this as a young, virgin, engaged girl? Well, verse 36, she didn't ask for this, but God in his kindness gave her a sign. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age will conceive a son. He's in his, and she's in her sixth month. In verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. God wanted Mary to remember the work above, his work of governing. Listen to this. God's work above is one that does impossible things on this earth below. God's work above is one that does impossible things in this work on this earth below. And the sign God gave Mary was that there would be a lady that she's related to that she knew, and God did an impossible thing in her life. You think about this. For Elizabeth's entire life, she was scorned, wasn't she? Right? She couldn't have a child. People would look down on her for that. And then God gives her a gift. And now you have a young girl who has a baby, who's, who's conceived a baby of the Holy Spirit, right? And she's going to be scorned. And what, what a great way for God to kind of hook them up and minister to each other. As Mary goes to Elizabeth's house and Elizabeth is able to minister to her. And I think it's interesting when, 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 when we face impossible situations, sometimes what we want to do is isolate ourselves, right? We want to pull back, kind of be by ourselves and kind of, kind of get away from, hunker down, get away from it all. But I think this is an interesting because thought I was thinking about when I read this was that, that God actually wants us, when we're in impossible situations, to connect with other believers, right? He wants us to be encouraged. And so if you're in the midst of a difficult situation, don't isolate yourself, but get with other believers. Pray with them. Find out how God is working in their life as well. And then last of all, we must remember God's work through you. What must you remember when faced with the impossible? Remember God's work through you. It's a work to serve. Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed. Mary heard God's word through the mouth of Gabriel. Immediately, what'd she do? I'm a servant of God. I surrender, right? Behold, I am the servant of God. I mean, it seems so simple. We can even easily pass over that. But Mary was not dumb. Like she knew what this entailed. Like she probably could have saw this is going to be really difficult, right? 
but she surrendered to what God had for her. In light of this, Mary responds, I believe you, God. I want to serve you, God. When we face the impossible, we really do have two choices. We can take what God gives us and we can complain about it. We can grit our teeth about it. We can reject God, right? Or we can do what Mary did and we can say, God, this is your plan. This is your will. I thank you for this opportunity to serve you. And that's, what, that's how I'm going to view this. This is an opportunity to serve. And Mary had this heart, didn't she? In fact, you look down in verse number 39. Here's a young teenage girl. What does it say she does? In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. That means she ran into the hill country, into the town of, into a town in Judea. She entered the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what does she do when she goes there? She goes there to serve her, her relative, also to see what God had done. In verse 45, Elizabeth says this to her, blessed is she, Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Yeah, think about it, right? Her husband's inside, Elizabeth's husband's inside. He didn't believe. <laughs> he didn't get to be a part of it. But here she says, Mary, she believed. And then we're not going to read through the whole thing, but look at verse 46. Mary rejoices in the Lord. And Mary said, think about this. If this is a 13 or 14 year old girl, think about what she's saying. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then she goes through and praises God for what God is doing in her life. Notice her response. It's one to serve. It's one to rejoice. What wisdom and faith from a young girl. In verse 56, Mary remained with her for three months, so helped her to the end of her pregnancy, and then returned home. And when you're faced with an impossible situation, we must remember the work that God's doing through you. God wants to do a work through you and through your life. God wants to take you and your situation and turn it into an opportunity for you to serve him. In fact, kind of to close, I thought I would think about the end of Jesus' life before he died and then was resurrected, his life on this earth. When he's on the cross in John chapter 19, if you picture Christ there suffering and Mary was standing right in front of Jesus. Her son, what, 30 some years later there, is gasping for breath bleeding out. He's dying. What do you think she was thinking at that moment? Right? All these promises. Like, how is this going to work out? Like, how is God going to do this? Like, God's the God of the impossible. How's this going to happen? I mean, if that was your son right before you and people are surrounding you, they're spitting on him, they're yelling at him, they're cursing him, what would you do? Right? I mean, wouldn't you be screaming at the top of your lungs, shut up! Like, right? Like, stop this. But she's here, God's servant, submitting to God, trusting the God of the impossible. What must you remember when faced with the impossible? Remember God's work in you. It's a work of grace. Remember God's work above you. It's a work of governing. Remember God's work through you. He, he wants you to serve him. I think this Christmas, let's remember that we have a God who's a God of the impossible. If you're in here today and you don't know Christ, you're not a believer, like God can do the impossible and rescue you from sin. He can forgive you for your sin. It's impossible for you to do on your own. And if you're a believer in here, 
and you're fearful of what 2019 holds, and you think, I don't know how this year is going to turn out. Remember this throughout this year. God is doing a work in you, above you, and through you.